You're listening to McBee Care Threads, a podcast where leaders across the healthcare industry can learn from each other. We'll discuss stories and explore strategies to help providers deliver value-based care and hear your peers share their best practices for success. Let's get into the show. Hello and welcome everyone to the McBee Care Threads podcast. My name is Maria Warren and I'm a senior director here at McBee. Our guest today is Howard Young, who is a partner at Morgan Lewis. Today's episode, we'll be discussing clinical compliance, highlighting some of the focus areas of the OIG and CMS and what providers can do to be more proactive. So let's get started. Howard, thanks so much for joining me today. It's an honor to have you as a guest on today's podcast. Why don't you take a minute to introduce yourself and talk about your role at Morgan Lewis. Terrific. Thank you, Maria. Uh, and thanks again to McBee for helping organize this. So I'm Howard Young. I'm a partner in, in lead the healthcare practice at Morgan Lewis. I've been a healthcare attorney uh, for my entire professional, at least legal career since the, uh, the early 1990s and uh, spent five years at the Office of Inspector General as one of their senior lawyers since I left that office in 2002, I've really focused on uh, healthcare compliance, fraud and abuse counseling, and a fair amount of defense of providers, hospice, home health, and many others in connection with government-facing matters. So those could be audits, those could be investigations, and various other types of interactions with the government, since, of course, Medicare and Medicaid in particular are the real drivers uh, in many of the healthcare uh, provider sectors, certainly home health and hospice. So it's been a really terrific opportunity I've had to work with a lot of hospice and home health providers across the country doing incredible work, uh, you know, keeping patients at home when possible. And um, obviously more and more care is moving to the home setting. So uh, those two sectors, and I know we'll focus uh, most of our comments on on those two sectors. It's just been, a, again, a tremendous uh, challenge, but honored to, to see how those sectors have evolved over the last 20, 25 years. You know, one other thing I'll mention is uh, because I'm in part a, an alum of HHS and because Medicare and Medicaid are such big drivers, you know, I hope to talk to you today a little bit about how the government approaches and thinks about its oversight role with regard to these uh, two, you know, essential benefits. And uh, clearly uh, your listeners are all living the the fact that there's a lot of oversight out there and, and I'll try to talk a little bit as to why that's the case. Thank you for sharing and what an interesting background that you have and, you know, how you navigated and got into, started out with the OIG and into your role now, but what, what got you interested in this space or, you know, what, what you draw you to it in this sure. career path? Yeah. You know, I, I went, candidly, I went into college knowing I wanted to be involved in healthcare my pre-med days were pretty short-lived, but I, I did in college focus on community health and um, went off to law school after a, a year of working and, again, focused on, on health care. It's uh, a passion. I knew I wanted to focus in the area. Uh, it's always changing. There's obviously a, a public health and public policy aspect to health care, and candidly, it's just a incredibly interesting and challenging area to be a, a lawyer. I also 
like the clients uh, I work with, right? I mean, particularly during this pandemic, the frontline workers, but also all of the people supporting these frontline workers, boy, what, what an essential job, right? And we're really indebted to, to all the work you do. And I feel like if I could help providers navigate through all of those issues, you know, it's, it's really a, a pleasure and, and uh, happy to do so. So healthcare is just what grabbed me. It's, it's a, my passion. If I wasn't a lawyer, I'd be doing something else in healthcare. But it's it's been a, a fun ride, Maria, to be able to sort of marry up my interest in policy and, and law and passion for healthcare because it's uh, it's a forever changing environment. Obviously, I mean, are we ever going to go five years without any material changes to home health and hospital? No. <laughs> so it, it again is uh, is really quite interesting. Keeps me uh, busy but keeps me really motivated to uh, work harder to understand all the challenges our, our clients face. Thanks for sharing that. And I, I share the, those same same feelings and values as to what brought me to healthcare and why I feel so passionate about it and true support of all of our frontline workers that are out there. And knowing that if, if I can't be in that seat, being here, standing behind them, helping them support and navigate all of these regulatory challenges. I, if, if we didn't have that, our, our jobs, as you said, would be boring. And yeah. it's exciting to be on the forefront of something that's constantly ever-changing and looking for different ways to approach it and, and solutions to provide. So I know you shared what, that you had the mindset, you know, with, with your background of knowing how OIG and HHS think about things and how they approach these. What have you been hearing and what are some of the hot buttons and focus items that, that we should be paying attention to? Well, there has been, I think, a constant focus. And even during the pandemic, I don't think it's let up on you know, the appropriate use of the home health benefit and hospice benefit. And what I mean by that, Maria, is that although about a year ago, really March, um, April, May, there was a little bit of let up, right, with respect to the, the audit and oversight activity. At the same time, there were a lot of these 1135 waivers, and that's when HHS, CMS, and others started to allow for greater flexibility to provide care during the pandemic, telehealth waivers, and we'll talk a little bit about what that means today and what OIG is going to start to audit tomorrow around telehealth and, and home health. But I think really since July into August, you know, we've continued to see a lot of audit activity mm -hmm. uh, in home health, particularly in hospice. The SMERC, the SMRC Noridian, never really took time off during the pandemic. They still collected documentation and they're they're still auditing uh, the UPEX are back as well the OIG has continued its audits so why even in the midst of you know the world's worst modern day pandemic is the government continuing uh, to really focus and scrutinize payments and coverage well in part because a lot of care has shifted to the home home health and hospice provide essential roles in that care model. There's a lot of money. And at the end of the day, if there's one reason and one reason only you ask me why, it's because Medicare is spending a lot of money on these two benefits. And they want to be good stewards of these programs of the Medicare you know, Part A trust fund. 
And so it means they audit and they review. And there's obviously some patient safety and oversight issues as well. Uh, none of that takes a break during the pandemic. So I think it's incumbent upon the providers to realize with doing business with Medicare, it's going to mean you're under scrutiny. That's never going to, to really change. And I think that's true irrespective of which party is in the White House, you know, whether Republican or Democrat. The reality is program integrity is, in a sense, nonpartisan. It's always been the case since you know I started doing this in the early 90s. And when I was at OIG, I worked uh, under a Republican administration and a Democratic administration. I can tell you, I saw no meaningful difference in the approach. And I think that's true as we transition from the Trump administration now and the Biden administration and the Center for Program Integrity at, at CMS, which oversees almost all of these contractors we're going to be talking about. There's really not a major shift in, in mindset. Uh, they want to make sure the Medicare dollars are being spent correctly. Is there going to be disagreement with the contractors as to what constitutes the proper utilization of these benefits? Of course. Is there going to be disagreement as to how these contractors are auditing and drawing certain conclusions uh, based on the, the, the written records? Of course. And that's where we see most of our activity in, in working with providers is really pushing back and, and helping to educate, if you will, these CMS contractors where we think they need to be educated or they're just wrong and why that's the case. But even with that pushback, even in the midst of a pandemic, uh, you know, this, this level of scrutiny has been fairly constant. And I will say, I think is going to only grow over the next few years. Um, we can talk a little bit about why that's the case as well. Great information there and helping everybody to understand the framework that regardless of what's going on and what changes, you know, uh, Democratic or Republican in the White House, that as things continue to shift, the focus is always on compliance and reducing fraud, waste and abuse and making sure that everybody is operating and has strong compliance programs in place to help prevent these because, you know, no, nobody intentionally and there there probably are some bad apples out there, but nobody intentionally goes out saying, I am not going to follow the guidelines and I am not going to adhere to the regulations and how they need to be instituted. It's as we get into things like the public health emergency that as things, certain things got lenient and process changed and without having a, a clear understanding of how to implement those things, as well as checks and balances in place within your organization to make sure that providers are able to, to capture these things, that they're doing it, that they're doing it correctly. Because, you know, as a lot of these waivers came out, it was a lot of drinking from the fire hose of right. keeping up with what was happening and how does this change impact us? How do we make these adjustments in our EMR? How do we make the adjustments in our day-to-day -day practice? But now it's as we're almost a year into this public health emergency, where does it go from here? And how do we then, that now they're coming to say, let's look at things a little bit closer, especially, you know, the use of the home health telehealth visits. Yeah. You know, I think since the, the additional regulatory flexibilities were put in place, we cautioned our clients that this is not an anything goes scenario in terms of 
documenting the decisions you're making around the modes of care, whether it's remote, you know, telehealth or in person. If you're not able for hospice, for instance, many were not able to get into assisted living facilities or congregate living, you know, nursing homes, even though CMS's hope was that you could continue to get in and provide that care. Many of those providers just or facilities said no, certainly during the early days of, of the pandemic. So where does that leave a provider? Well, you, you still have to provide the care. If you're not doing it in person, you ought to be documenting not just what you're doing, but in these situations, why, right? Because we know that eventually the auditors are going to come back through and, and look, they still are paying for home health episodes and, and hospice. And many, many took a hit during the pandemic, but you know, many saw the caregiving continue to, to be furnished in a robust manner, right? They didn't see major hits in, in census, which is great. And the need, community need is there, but it's not as if HHS was giving a, a pass, even with respect to some of these additional flexibilities. So we'll see, Maria. I mean, as they come in and do these audits and look at the documentation, was it robust? Was it robust enough, right? And the reality is with caregivers, frontline caregivers, whether it's during the pandemic or not. I mean, they're challenging situations. You're focused on providing high quality clinical care. Sometimes that's at the expense of really robust documentation. Now, technology has helped with that, right? Uh, the, The EMR systems and the tablets and the like. But at the same time, there's a little bit of a hug and and push there with with the EMRs and the tablets if, as we often see now, there are a lot of drop downs that are used and not a lot of charting, you know, the why, the detail. And so these audits, you know, when they're seeing certain checkboxes, but not seeing that detail and, and adding that detail takes time out of a busy nurse's day, right? A lot of time. So that's many of the challenges uh, here. And uh, during the pandemic, those challenges maybe were exacerbated. I mean, having to get your PPE on just right took time. Uh, You still had to, if you were doing an in-home visit, abide by various additional protocols. That takes time. And oftentimes it can be at the expense of, of charting in a robust manner. I'm afraid that as these audits roll out, the government's not going to have a whole lot of sympathy for those situations, but we'll see. I mean, to the government's credit, they've shown additional flexibility. So let's see if during the audit phase, when they're looking at 2020, if that additional flexibility is, uh, you know, is demonstrated. What we've primarily seen during the pandemic, during 2020 into 21, is post-pay audits um, looking backwards, right, into some cases as far back as 2015 up through 2019. So a lot of those post-pay audits pre-pandemic, what do they focus on? You know, for home health, it's things like was the face-to-face done timely, properly by the right individual was um, in, in home health, obviously an issue that has always been a constant and is going to remain constant is 
was the patient homebound, need of skilled care, nothing new there uh, that's continued and, and will continue. Even in the face of changes in reimbursement and the like, those core coverage principles remain in place. And that's true with hospice as well. Is the patient terminally ill? Does the documentation support it? Yeah, there's the face-to-face -face issue in, in hospice as well. There's a lot of technical documentation, the, the CTIs. So none of that is particularly new, long length of stay patients in hospice, been a concern of the government ever since the benefit was rolled out, continues to be a focus area. If, if anything, an increased uh, focus area, we're seeing quite a bit of uh, audit activity and long length of stay uh, patients by an array of contractors. Uh, Maria, maybe talk a little bit about what, uh, what we're seeing there and, and perhaps why. Yeah, that, that's a great point. I mean, uh, on both of them, everything goes back to the core. What are the core reasons that the patient's on service? Nothing new there, but as we shine the spotlight on these, as you were saying, like with documentation and changes within EMRs and drop downs of if, if you didn't document it, it didn't happen. So getting back to all of those core reasons and looking into not only educational strategies of, of what they can be doing, I know that, you know, a lot don't want to do the documentation in the home. So they're taking the work home with them um, mm. to do it after the fact. But let's, I guess, segue into a little bit about what advice do we have for providers and, and what should they be doing and how do they mitigate their risk of helping to avoid get an audit or what, what should they be doing if they get an audit? Yeah, well, all of the providers we're talking about have copy programs, right? Some are, are going to focus heavily on the quality assurance piece, but you can't forget about the performance improvement piece as well. And, and I think of, and I know a lot of hospices often think of compliance sort of wrapped up within the copy program. I would just urge though that um, you need to also focus on documentation from a billing perspective as well. So I, I think really critical for all providers is, and this is an investment of resources and it may not be generating income, I, I realize that, but in some ways it's a great insurance plan and, and uh, helps mitigate risk to the extent that you are audited or to the extent you have, and I think everyone has an interest in trying to avoid audits if, if possible. And that is, pre-bill reviews, right? To make sure before you drop the bill to your, in a sense, biggest customer, Medicare and, and perhaps Medicaid, that you are doing what you can to reasonably abide by their standards. And they have high standards, right? High documentation standards, technical compliance. You might say, oh my gosh, so a doctor forgot to date a certification. Come on, really, you know, give me a break or forgot to sign, or the signature is illegible. Really? Uh, you know, I provided all this care. It was necessary. You're going to deny me payment on that basis? They're all um, add in there. Whether it's uh, a stamp signature or stamp date, they're big target areas as well. They are. And, and you might be frustrated by that. But again, if your biggest customer, Medicare, says, well, this is what we expect or demand, I think it's a good use of resources to have someone not saying do a complete chart review of every service before it's billed, but there are certain core 
requirements. You know, do we actually have this certification of terminal illness? Uh, if it's a later benefit period in, in hospice, have we actually done the face-to-face? Now, many providers have, in a sense, automated a lot of this uh, through their EMR system, but I still think having a human eye take a look at at some of this and and not just say, oh, we missed this one, but learn from it and communicate to the others in the organization, hey, I'm starting to see this pattern or maybe we should do another in-service with Dr. So-and-so, the, you know, the, the brief narratives are a little too brief and, you know, staying proactive and doing it in a really concerted manner. I think, again, it, it takes resources. I understand that in a world of limited resources, that could be hard, but I think it, it does pay off for organizations in the long run. And I do think, and I see this a lot, Maria, with compliance programs, the the staff, the employees feel more supported, right? They know there's a person or a number of people, if they have questions, who to ask? And they know they're not going to be dressed down for, for asking and no question is too stupid to ask, right? If you if you have that kind of environment and the resources behind it, I think it helps you when you are in an audit situation, it helps to avoid a real not just time suck for management, but expense risk area, which is a government investigation. You know, the OIG and the Department of Justice continue to do investigations of home health and hospice and talk about, you know, having a a process that just can really rip an organization apart. You want to avoid that, right? And there are ways to, to mitigate those risks. So coming back to COPY and, and being really focused on pre-bill reviews. I think those are critical elements. Now, the other thing is just staying up on, and you alluded to it before, boy, it's hard to keep track of all the changes. It really is. But I think having someone assigned to to really stay focused on on those changes, listen to podcasts such as this and, and others, but also, you know, you could subscribe to uh, certain information, um, CMS and OIG website, frankly, have come a long way. Even the contractors where it's sometimes very hard to know who they are and what they're doing and why they're doing it. Even they're improving uh, in terms of communication. Noridian, for instance, which holds many of these contracts as a website, it's not very up to date, but still uh, I think having someone look at this information, try to understand it. If they don't understand it, try to consult with others who might. I think that's pretty critical because the government, once they post this information or push it out there, OIG does a lot of reporting and puts these out on their website, kind of have an expectation that someone's paying attention to all of this. And if you're not, they'll often hold that against you. I hate to say it, but their view is, hey, look, the reason we post all of this is so you can learn from it. So you'll know what we're thinking and what's important to us. So it's hard, though. I understand it's in a sense what I'm suggesting is throw a lot of resources and staying uh, on top of everything. I guess it's a, a plug also for for the McBees of the world, right, because you're staying on top of all of it. But, uh, you know, knowing when to turn outside external resources is important as well as a a leader. Um, And 
the last thing I'll mention is just uh, going back to your point, if it wasn't documented, it didn't happen. So you, know, you can have very talented nurses, therapists, et cetera, great clinicians, you know, great communicators, great people, great caregivers. But if they're lousy at documenting, that's a risk area for uh, the organization. And you really have to lead those people to, to understand it is a critical job function that they document and document well. That's if there's any one major risk mitigation step, that's it, right? Train these people to make documentation part of their work lifeblood. It's hard, but so critical. Absolutely. I hit the nail on the head with that, Howard. Every single one of those things are are key takeaway items for our listeners. You know, focus on the quapi and, and the internal quality, educate your staff, as well as com- complete pre-bill reviews or some type of, whether it's a monthly small audit of a 10% or 5%, just get a feel for what's in the record. Know if you're starting to identify any trends. And that goes, you know, across the board, home health and hospice, as well as stay in the know, keep up to date, what, whatever your mode of information sharing is, whether it's reading news articles and perusing websites, signing up for webinars and different seminars that are out there. Lots are free these days. So it's, it's important to stay in the know on what's happening and to keep up to date with that stuff. So well said, and thank you for all of your insights shared with us today. A lot of great takeaways for our listeners and really appreciate your expertise in these areas. Thank you, Maria. I enjoyed it. And uh, thank you to all the listeners out there as well. All right. Hope everyone enjoyed this episode of the McBee Care Threads podcast. At McBee, we understand the challenges providers face across the healthcare landscape. For more than 45 years, we've been a part of the evolution of the healthcare industry. Our strategic advisory solutions span the home health, hospice, health system, and senior living care continuums, creating improved clinical, financial, and operational outcomes. Our expertise is guaranteed. Our solutions empower. Visit us today at mcbeassociates.com. Thank you for listening to McBee Care Threads. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. For more information on the topics discussed today, visit our website at mcbeassociates.com. Until next time.